We are in 1 Samuel chapter 24 this morning, so please open your Bibles to 1 Samuel 24. That is our manner for this morning. Let's pray before we feed upon the Word of God. Father God, I'm conscious that your Word is a living Word, that it has a life imbibed within it that can speak and to us all, that has a power that can come forth. And I pray, Lord, that as we look into your word this morning, we might engage with your word, we might engage with you, and that, Lord, you would send your spirit to anoint me and our ears, that we would hear and receive all that you want to impart to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, David is in the wilderness. He is both, uh, and it's a wilderness that is both physical and spiritual in nature. Now physically he was in the Judean wilderness which is to the east of Jerusalem between Jerusalem and the uh, Jordan River and we've seen David in the wilderness of Ziph, the wilderness of Maon, the wilderness of Engedi, all sub-wildernesses part of this greater Judean wilderness and it's an inhospitable terrain. It's a rugged landscape, arid, with sparse vegetation and today it is largely desert in nature. And life was uncomfortable for David and his men. There was little of the pleasures of life to enjoy. Every day is a battle to find food and shelter. And they were constantly under attack by Saul who pursued them relentlessly. But David was in a spiritual wilderness as well. And a spiritual wilderness is a God-ordained God-ordained time of testing and training. It's when God puts you in a difficult position and there is no way for you to escape and he is constantly making things hard for you. But through that period of time, your faith gets stronger, your reliance upon the Lord increases and you come out a much stronger, more fervent Christian. And God was using Saul to put David in a place where he could test and train him in righteousness. And it was uncomfortable for David spiritually as well as physically. But it was necessary if he was to be rightly prepared to become king. And in this spiritual wilderness, David was facing emotional and mental and spiritual discomfort on a daily basis. And uh, in a place spiritually that was dry and arid and with little spiritual nourishment or encouragement, just like the physical environment he was in. And he was facing temptation and a spiritual attack on a daily basis. And although David was struggling daily, he was learning to trust in the Lord daily on a deeper level. His character was being refined and being made more godly. Now David was the Lord's anointed. Samuel had come and anointed him with oil and the Holy Spirit had uh, also come upon David as well. So the physical anointing reflected a spiritual anointing. And there's always this physical spiritual dynamic going on. And the Hebrew word for anointed one is Messiah. Thus David needed to be trained to reflect the character of a Messiah. And already we have seen how David had stopped running to men for comfort from the likes of Samuel and Achish and Ahimelech, and now he ran to the Lord for comfort. So you can see how this wilderness experience was bearing fruit in his life. 
and how David had stopped looking for refuge in the strongholds of men, whether it be Moab, Keilah, or Nob. Now David made God his refuge. So you can see how this wilderness experience was working and training him in righteousness. But there is one more lesson the Lord needs to teach David. And that lesson is, the Lord will fight for you. He needs to learn that the Lord will fight for him, that you don't need to take matters into your own hands because the Lord will defend you, the Lord will establish you, and the Lord will take care of your enemies. And this is an important lesson to learn, especially for us men. We all need to learn this lesson because when our egos are wounded, when we're opposed by other people, by other men, when we're facing mounting odds, we tend to want to take matters into our own hands, do we not? We want to work it out for ourselves. We want to defend ourselves. We want to prove ourselves. We want to establish ourselves. And that part of us needs to die. And we need to learn that God will fight our battles, that God will defend us, that God will establish us. God says, no, stand in my strength, not your strength. Allow me to defend you. Wait for me to establish you. I will deal with your enemies in my timing. And that takes faith. That takes real, deep, embedded faith to trust your life and your battles into the Lord's hands. It reminds me of that hymn by George Duffield, Stand Up For Jesus. Stand up, stand up for Jesus, stand in his strength alone. The arm of flesh will fail you, ye dare not trust your own. Put on the gospel armour and watching unto prayer, where calls the voice of duty, be never wanting there. Do not trust in your own arm of flesh, it will fail you. You need to stand in the strength of the Lord. And so what we have here is the beginnings of a trilogy. A trilogy that spans chapter 24, 25 and 26, where God will teach David that the Lord will fight for him and that the Lord will vindicate him. So this is part one this week and we've got part two and part three to follow, so long as I can get through part two in one go because it's a long chapter. Now, when David was uh, betrayed by the Ziphites, he'd written in Psalm 54 uh, in, uh, uh, about his experience, and he had prayed, Lord, vindicate me by your strength. And in Psalm 24, 25, and 6, we will see that prayer answered, as the Lord will vindicate David uh, in the presence of King Saul, and in the presence of his 600 men, and in the presence of Israel's army of 3,000 men. And the way he does it is this. In 1 Samuel chapter 24, David will have an opportunity to kill his enemy, Saul. He will call back from doing so, but he will still take matters into his own hands. He will commit a sin against Saul, who is also the Lord's anointed, by the way. And after which David will have a sense of the conviction of the Holy Spirit. So he will be tested. He will be tempted in chapter 24 in the text that we're looking at today. But he will fail that test. Then in Samuel chapter 25, the Lord will put David in a similar situation. However, with a different enemy named Nabal. 
And once more, David moves to take matters into his own hands instead of trusting the Lord to fight his battles. And as David moves into sin again, the Lord will bring godly counsel to David through an unlikely source, a woman called Abigail. And David will learn his lesson and wait for the Lord's vindication. He will wait for the Lord to fight his battles. And indeed, the Lord will fight for him and the Lord will deal with his enemy in chapter 25. Then we get to part three in chapter 26, and the Lord will once more give David an opportunity to kill his, uh, his enemy Saul. He'll have a complete replay of what's happening in chapter 24. And once more, David will hold back from doing so. However, this time, he also refuses to dishonor the Lord's anointed. And instead, he chooses to wait for the Lord's vindication. And we will see there in chapter 26 that he's learned to trust the Lord to fight for him. He has learned to trust the Lord to deal with his enemies. He will grow deeper in faith. So by the time that we reach 1 Samuel chapter 31, we will see that God indeed does deal with David's enemy. He will remove Saul and the Lord will establish David. Now I hope you followed that, but that's the trajectory for our next three talks. Lord willing, let's go into chapter 24. We'll start by reading the first four verses. Now it happened when Saul had returned from following the Philistines that it was told him, saying, Take note, David is in the wilderness of Engedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel and went to seek David and his men on the brocks of the wild goats. So he came to the sheepfolds by the road where there was a cave. And Saul went in to attend to his needs. David and his men were staying in the recesses of the cave. Then the men of David said to him, This is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will deliver your enemy into your hand, that you may do to him as it seems good to you. And David arose and secretly cut off a corner of Saul's robe. So David was hiding in the strongholds of the wilderness of Ziph, the Ziphites had come and given David's location to King Saul, if you remember from last time, who caught up with David at a place called the Rock in the wilderness of Maon. And David and his men were on one side of the mountain, and Saul and his men, were out, which outnumbered David five to one, were on the other side of the mountain. And they encircled around the mountain in a pincer movement, ready to get David. David had no way to escape. And just when we thought that David's number was up, Saul was called away to deal with a Philistine incursion. And in the meantime, David had taken the journey east to Engedi, which is located right next to the Dead Sea. And even though we're in a wilderness and the Dead Sea is the last water you want to drink, there were these freshwater springs and these mountain goats that were in Engedi. It's a little Eden in the midst of a wilderness in Gedi. And I know that Mark and Nicola have visited, haven't you? Um, and they were testified to that. And the word Engedi comes from two words, en meaning fountain or spring, and Gedi meaning a, a young goat, a goat kid. So it's fountain of the goat. And uh, beautiful location, 1,388 feet below sea level, and there are many, many caves for shelter. It's also rich in vegetation, trees and fruit. So anyway, Saul returns from fighting the Philistines. He receives an intelligence report concerning David's whereabouts, probably from those two-faced swine from Ziph again. 
and uh, Saul takes his 3,000 men to Engedi to hunt down David. And so we read in verse 3 again, So he that is Saul came to the sheepfolds by the road where there was a cave, and Saul went in to attend to his needs. But David and his men were staying in the recess of the cave. So David and his men see Saul and the armies of Israel marching toward them, and they have three choices. Choice one, fight. Second choice, flight. Third choice, freeze. Now I know about the fight, flight, freeze mechanism that operates in people. I don't know what your instinct is to do in situations. My instinct is to be like a squirrel and freeze. I get paralysed in the face of uh, situations. Some people have got more of a fight instinct. Some people want to run away. Now David has no interest in fighting. Not only are they outnumbered five to one, Israel are his people. Israel are not his enemies. And David has tried flight. He's been on, he's on the run for years. So maybe now it's try, time to try something new. So what we'll do is we'll hide in Engedi. After all, it's such a nice place. Who would want to leave? So David tries freeze. And in the back of the cave, he and his men take shelter, aiming to wait for when the army passes by, then they can come out again. Now, not only are wild goats in Engedi, there's clearly some sheep there as well, because Saul walks past a sheep cave and he gets caught short and he needs to take a fresh break. So he finds a cave and uh, he goes in. Now the law of Moses has very strict guidelines about sanitation. It says in Deuteronomy 23 verses 12 to 14, also you should have a place outside the camp where you may go out and you should have an implement among your equipment and when you sit down outside you shall dig with it and turn over your refuse. For the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp to deliver you and to give your enemies over to you. Therefore your camp shall be holy, that it may see no unclean thing among you and turn away from you. So, Saul knows this. He takes his shovel. He's got to find a place away from the camp of the Israelites. And, uh, of course, he wants some privacy, as we all do in those situations. So he takes his spade to the nearest cave, and just by chance, he walks into the very cave that David and his men are hiding. Is this the providence of God or not? And uh, being in a cave has its advantages because you can see out and thus who is passing, but those who are passing can't see who's in because it's dark. So David and his men can see everything that's going on. Saul and his men have got no idea what's going on in the cave. And again in verse 4, Then the men of David said to him, This is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will deliver your enemy into your hand, that you may do to him as it seems good to you. And David arose and secretly cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Now, we have no actual record of God saying to David, Behold, I will deliver your enemy into your hands, that you may do to him as seems good to you. But clearly David's men see this as a providential occurrence, an opportunity for David to take Saul's life and rid them of this wilderness lifestyle once and for all. So David crawls slowly and quietly from the back of the cave. I don't know whether he was like 
whether we, or whether he was on his belly kind of doing a commando shuffle but you can see the men looking on with the breath of anticipation and David takes out his dagger and he raises it up and of course the men are expecting him to slit the king's throat or something of that nature and instead David cuts off the corner of the king's robe and no doubt the men are utterly dumbfounded totally deflated what is this not job up to him he had the king right in his hands and he just cuts off a corner of his robe well we might imagine that Saul was wearing his robe uh, when David cut off the corner but in which case I can't quite see how David would have got so close to uh, Saul without Saul detecting his presence I certainly would know if somebody was creeping up to me if I was on the loo um, the general consensus among commentators is that Saul had taken off his outer garment, put it to one side, thus he was able to relieve himself. Hence David could reach the robe and cut off the corner quite easily and undetected. Now, we need to take a bit of a detour here. Because cutting off the corner of Saul's robe or the hem of his garment might send your mind to other scriptures. When I talk about the hem of the garment, the cutting of the corner of the robe, what does that bring to people's minds? Kingship? Anything else? Sorry? The tassels on the bottom of, of a garment, yes. Anything else? Touching the hem of his garment? Yeah, all those things. In 1 Samuel 15, we read, we read about how Saul seized the edge of Samuel's robe and tore it. Also, in Matthew chapter 23, verse 5, Jesus criticised the scribes and Pharisees for enlarging the borders of their garments. And of course, in Luke 8, 43, we read about a woman with a flow of blood touching the border of Jesus' garment. There is something significant about the corner of the robe, about the edge of the garment. And this is because the hem of a person's garment held much greater social significance in the ancient world than it does for today. It represented who that person was. It represented the person who owned that robe. And the more important the individual, the more ornate the hem of the garment would usually be. Thus, to cut off the hem is to imply uh, uh, injury or denial of that person's value. It was a big social faux pas. It was a deep personal insult to cut off the hem of the garment. Now, I did a little bit of research on this, and uh, there are some historical accounts which point towards the significance of the hem of the garment. The first uh, was in ancient Mesopotamia, where they've uncovered documents from the city of Mari on the Euphrates River dating back to the 18th century BC. So this is just a, a, a few hundred years after... Uh, no, a few hundred years before David. Yeah, a few hundred years before David. And, um, and in there, there's a letter where the author speaks of a trustworthy person wherein he states, and I quote, Since this man was trustworthy... I did not take any of his hair or the fringe of his garment. And then in another letter in the same batch, the author speaks of a dishonest person 
wherein he states, quote, I now hereby dispatch to my Lord the fringe of his garment and lock from his head. From that day, this servant has been ill. So, because it was a trustworthy person, they left their gar the corner of the garment intact. Because it was a dishonest person, they cut off the corner of the garment. It was, a dis it was seen as a significant thing. Another example uh, I found was in, uh, in the old Babylonian period, which was circa 2000 to 1600 BC. The bride price, the dowry, was paid by the father of the bride and was traditionally sewn in the hem of his daughter's garment as part of the marriage agreement. And in some cases, if a divorce occurred, the husband would cut off the hem of his wife's robe. So here we see the social significance of the garment, of, uh, corner of the garment. Now, we don't need to go to ancient history. We can go to the Bible to find other uh, examples of this as well. In Genesis 37.3, we all know about Joseph's coat of many colours. It was actually a coat with long sleeves. That's the proper Hebrew. And the hem of the garment would have, been, would have denoted Joseph's authority over his brothers. That's why they hated him. And that's why they hated that coat, because it denoted his authority, and it would have had a special hem about it. And it's interesting, his father Jacob, having heeded the dream, wherein God said he would rule, Joseph would rule over his brothers, almost seems to try to fulfill the prophecy himself by elevating Joseph, by giving him this coat with long sleeves and the hem that denoted his authority. In Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 12, uh, we, it says this, You shall make tassels on the four corners of the clothing with which you cover yourselves. These tassels are called tzitzit. And uh, there's more told about them in Numbers 15, verses 37 to 41, where we learn that a blue cord was to be woven into them. And their purpose was to remind the Israelites of the commandments of God. This hem of the garment that seats it on it was to remind the children of Israel of the commandments of God. They were to look upon these commandments, these, these tassels, remember the commandments of God, and that should keep them from sin and idolatry. Thus the hem of the garment not only represented the individual and their social status, and it was not only a symbol of a person's authority and position, for the Jew, it was a matter of cultural and religious identity, and it was a sign that you were bound to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Can you now see that cutting off the corner of Saul's robe was no small thing? When David cut off the corner of Saul's robe, this was deeply insulting. It undermined Saul's authority and status as king and as the Lord's anointed. It showed disrespect great respect for Saul as a man. It removed his cultural and religious identity. In fact, it's hard to imagine how David could have insulted Saul more. This was not an act of mercy. This was an act of insult and undermining of the king. And so we read on in verses 5 to 7. Now it happened afterwards that David's heart troubled him because he had cut Saul's robe. And he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him, seeing he is the anointed of the Lord. 
So David restrained his servants with these words and did not allow them to rise against Saul. And Saul got up from the cave and went on his way. So while the Holy Spirit may have departed Saul and now rested on David, Saul remained the Lord's anointed. And he would remain so until his death. And how we respond and, and treat the Lord's anointed affects our spiritual position before God greatly. Let me say that again. How we respond and treat the Lord's anointed affects our spiritual position before God greatly. Remember, what does anointed one mean? It means Messiah. And what had David effectively done to the Messiah figure here? He'd shown him a deep insult, cut off the hem of his garment, undermined his authority, his religious status, and so forth. How we respond to the Messiah affects our spiritual position uh, greatly before God as well. If we respond with honour and respect and faith and repentance towards the Messiah, then we will be granted salvation. But if we insult the Messiah, use him as a curse word, show no regard for him, then we only have judgment awaiting us. David was in danger of judgment here because of the way he treated King Saul. It was no small thing that he had done. To show disrespect and dishonour the Lord's anointed is to show disrespect and dishonour to the Lord himself. That's why David's actions are so sinful. And that's why the actions of Nabal towards David in chapter 25 are so sinful too, by the way. Because Nabal is sinning against the Lord's anointed David there. So David has sinned against Saul and against the Lord by cutting off the hem of Saul's garment. And you might argue David was taking a very measured and restrained step by only cutting off the corner of Saul's garment when after all he should have cut off Saul's head. But, uh, you know, the degree of offence doesn't matter. And that's something we tell ourselves to feel better about our sin, isn't it? Well, I could have been a whole lot worse. I could have killed Saul, but I only cut off his robe. I could have robbed a bank. Instead, I only kept the ex extra change I was wrongly given by the cash cashier. It doesn't matter about degrees. From God's point of view, sin is sin. And we need to avoid it at all costs. So regardless of degree, David was still attacking instead of relying upon the Lord. He was fighting his own battles instead of trusting the Lord to fight for him. But now we see how tender David's heart was. No doubt a reason the Lord loved him so much was this tenderness within David's heart. Because at the moment he sins, he is immediately troubled in his heart. And he comes under conviction. And you know what? Instead of burying that conviction or hiding from it, as perhaps we might do, he responds immediately to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. How wonderful is that? And how he responds is by confessing first his sin to his men, and then as we shall see, he confesses his sin to Saul. And when Saul was convicted of his sin, do you remember what happened? He had uh, been charged to kill all the Amalekites back in chapter 15, he failed to do that. Not only did he not king, kill King Agag, but he let all the livestock of the Amalekites survive. He was convicted of his sin by Samuel. And instead of having a tender heart like David, he tried to cover up his sin. He offered excuses for his sin. Anything, anything but confess his sin. And the result was the kingdom of Israel was torn from Saul. 
But here David is running the risk of losing the kingdom himself because of what he's done by his actions towards Saul. However, unlike Saul, when he comes under conviction, he responds immediately. He comes and he admits his fault. Thus, he's preserved from losing the kingdom. However, the Lord will need to test and train David again through Nabal and Abigail incident in chapter 25 before testing him a second time in this area. The question is, how sensitive are you to the Lord's conviction of your sin? Are you a Saul or are you a David? Do you deny that conviction, resist that conviction, offer excuses, or do you respond with a tender heart and admit, yes, I have done wrong? You know, it can be the difference between receiving the blessings of the kingdom or missing out on them. We need to have a tender heart. We need to pray, Lord, make my heart tender. So let's read David's response again. The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him, seeing he is the anointed of the Lord. It would seem that David is speaking both to himself, to the Lord, and to his men. And so David restrained his servants with these words we read, and did not allow them to rise against Saul. And Saul got up from the cave and went on his way. So evidently, you know, these men were prepared to do what David seemed unable to do, and that is to take the life of King Saul. But David's confession not only saved David's life, but it would seem save the lives of his men as well, stop them from sinning. They would have had the curse of God visited on them for harming the Lord's anointed. Thus David proves himself a messianic figure inasmuch as he stands in the gap for his people and saves them from judgment. Okay, so now a big section, verses 8 to 15. David also arose afterward, went out of the cave, and called out to the Saul, saying, My Lord the King! And when Saul looked behind him, David stooped with his face to the earth and bowed down. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Indeed, David seeks your, your harm? Look this day, your eyes have seen that the Lord delivered you today into my hand in the cave. And someone urged me to kill you, but my eyes spared you, and I said, I will not stretch out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. Moreover, my father, see, yes, see the corner of your robe in my hand, for in that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, know and see that there is neither evil nor rebellion in my hand, and I have not sinned against you. Yet you hunt my life to take it. Let the Lord judge between you and me, and let the Lord avenge me on you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancient says, wickedness proceeds from the wicked, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? Whom do you pursue? A dead dog? A flea? Therefore let the Lord be judge and judge between you and me, and see and plead my case, and deliver me out of your hand. So after Saul had left the cave, David followed him out and called out to him. And the fact that he had to call out to Saul tells us that he allowed enough distance to occur between them so that before he revealed himself, he wanted to make sure he was at a safe distance. Very wise. Considering Saul's changeable nature, that's for sure. Then, despite the pain and suffering David had endured at the hands of Saul, and despite the insults and false accusations David had endured at the hands of Saul, David still shows Saul due respect and honour. 
That's important for us to note. He still showed Saul respect and honour despite being mistreated and not liking the king, if you like. That's a lesson for us. You may not respect the person in office, but you must still show respect to that office, as David does. 2 Peter 2 verses 13 to 17 talk about our duty towards those in authority and it says honour all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honour the king. You might not like the king, you might not agree with the king but you still honour the king or those in authority. And so David first shows that honour by bowing down to the king on the ground prostrate showing an act of submission and recognizing the king and his authority secondly david addresses saul with respect he calls him my master my lord the lord's anointed my father all terms of reverence and respect and then once the formalities are done david offers a defense to the king which consists of seven arguments the first argument is instead of imputing guilt to Saul for what he's doing, he suggests that he's been in receipt of bad intelligence by his advisors. Why do you listen to the words of men who say, indeed, David seeks your harm? His second argument is that uh, he, he reveals the opportunity he had to kill Saul, Saul, even urged on by his advisors, but he did not take it. The Lord delivered you today into my hand in the cave and someone urged me to kill you, but my eye spared you. Illustrating how he did not follow his advisor but showed mercy, maybe Saul should do the same. The third argument is that he states his reason for the restraint. He said, I will not stretch out my hand against my Lord for he is the Lord's anointed. He shows respect for the office implying Saul should do the same to him because he is the Lord's anointed too. The fourth argument is he provides evidence for his action. Moreover, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For in that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you. Know and see that there is neither evil nor rebellion in my hand and I have not sinned against you. Ironically, although David has sinned against Saul by cutting off the hem of his garment, he declares that he has not sinned. Of course, he's referring to the greater sin of killing Saul. So Saul and all the people see David's lack of intent to kill the king. Then he presents his fifth argument. And David then argues that Saul's response is unwarranted. He suggests that they lay their collective lives before the Lord. Let him judge. Let him avenge. Yet you hunt my life to take it? Let the Lord judge between you and me, he says. Let the Lord avenge me on you. Then his sixth argument, David makes a vow to not raise his hand against the king. In fact, twice he declares, but my hand shall not be against you. He makes a firm vow twice that he has got no intent to kill Saul. And between these two declarations, he quotes a proverb, wickedness proceeds from the wicked. In other words, he reassures Saul he has nothing to fear from himself. And then the seventh and final argument he, he says is that David highlights how disproportionate Saul's anger is in contrast to the threat that David poses by comparing himself to a dead dog and a flea. Whom do you pursue, he says? A dead dog? A flea? A dead dog, of course, bears no threat. I've never felt threatened by a dead dog. 
Have anybody here been threatened by a dead dog? No, not at all. What about the flea that's on the back of that dead dog? I mean, that poses no threat to, 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 to a man, and if David is this flea on the back of the dead dog, then he poses no threat to Saul. He says, I stand unarmed before you, an army of 3,000 men, effectively. What have you got to fear? And this is quite, quite incredible when you think about it. The vulnerability David places himself at, yet in that vulnerability, he's putting his confidence in God. Because he says, let the Lord be judged and judge between you and me and see and plead my case and deliver me out of your hand. Wonderful, wonderful uh, defence. And so our last verses, 16 to 22. So it was when David had finished speaking these words to Saul that Saul said, Is this your voice, my son, David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. And then he said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have rewarded me good, whereas I have rewarded you with evil. And you have shown this day how you have dealt with me, for when the Lord delivered me into your hand, you did not kill me. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him get away safely? Therefore, may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now I know indeed that you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Therefore, swear now to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants after me, and that you will not destroy my name from my father's house. So David swore to Saul, and Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. So I don't know, but I kind of think that David's heart must have been beating like a drum, waiting for Saul's response. Who would have imagined such an impassioned reply, eh? Tears mingled with a reciprocal confession, followed by a request for a covenant to be drawn up between them. Saul said, is that your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. Sounds very dramatic, doesn't it? He should have been working for Rada. I suspect Saul's weeping was a mixture of relief and conviction. So long had he operated in paranoia and fear toward David, convinced of the threat that he posed to his throne and to his life, that such a turn of events and a persuasive argument by David released an untold build-up of emotions in Saul. But let me tell you this, tears of relief does not equal tears of repentance. There is no fundamental change in Saul's heart. I've lost my place. I found my place. Um, so I'm convinced that the heart of Saul is unchanged. In fact, we know this for certain because in chapter 26 he will resume his pursuit of David again. But now he has to compose himself. How do you respond to a man whom, has, whom he has pursued relentlessly who now offers irrefutable evidence of his righteousness and his good intent, that has shown that he does not intend to take the king's life, that he's in fact saved, you know, saved himself from taking the king's life. For Saul to kill David now, when he's unarmed, come out humbly like that bad before him, that would be dishonourable, and cause Saul to lose face in front of the whole of Israel. There's no way that he can kill David now after what David has said. 
The, uh, the only honourable course of action that he can, can take is to re retreat with some semblance of dignity. So now Saul has to somehow mastermind something to say so he can withdraw to a later time. So he starts off, You are more righteous than I, for you have rewarded me with good, whereas I have rewarded you with evil. The shock of falling into David's hands and having his life preserved seems to send Saul into a moment of unexpected clarity, as he most certainly would not have shown the same mercy if the situation had been reversed. So he honours the character of David and reproaches his own character. But ironically, this shows Saul to be noble by saying this sort of thing. So he's kind of painting himself in a good character before his people by sort of saying, oh, you're greater than me, David. I'm, I'm just so bad. It's like a false confession. And uh, then he goes on, Therefore may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. So Saul, having taken a step back from his aggression, then confers a blessing upon David as a way of saying thank you for saving my life. And then the fourth response is, Now I know indeed that you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Now this confirms what Jonathan had said to David in the forest of Heresh in the previous chapter. In 1 Samuel 23, verse 17, Jonathan said this, You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Even my father knows that. Saul had known for years that the house of Saul would not retain the kingdom. The prophet Saul had made that abundantly clear in chapter 15. Only now does Saul confess it for the first time with his mouth. And the most staggering thing is, this does not stop Saul from continuing to attempt to kill David later on in chapter 26. You see, a man may know the truth, yet still reject it. Amen? A man may know the truth and still reject it, and that man was Saul. Hebrews 10 verse 26 says this, For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. It puts to mind a friend of mine that I knew when I was a young Christian. And uh, this guy supposedly became a Christian the same time as me. I was convinced he was saved at the time. Now I question that. But we'd grown up for the first two to three years in the faith together. And he'd determined to go down the path of a sexual relationship outside of wedlock. And the way I knew that is I went over his house, we were in his bedroom, and I saw his calendar. And he had blocked out a period of a week where he'd booked to go away with his girlfriend. And he hadn't said holiday, he'd called it a shag fest. So I challenged him on it. And he acknowledged to me that he knew it was sin, that he knew that it was wrong, but he was going to do it anyway. And that can so often be the case, that we know what is the truth, we know what is right, we know what is wrong, but we determine to go down the path of sin. We follow our own hearts instead of following the Lord. The last time I spoke to this guy, which was a few years ago, he was starting to follow Buddhism. Jeremiah 17 verse 9 says this, The heart is deceitfully, deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? This is Saul. 
deceived in his heart and desperately wicked. So let me tell you this, don't follow your heart. No matter what the Disney movie says, don't follow your heart, follow the Lord. So Saul ends his acquittal of David with a request. Therefore swear to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants after me, but that you will not destroy my name from my father's house. Now this is akin to the covenant that David cut with, um, with David. Sorry, David cut with Jonathan, whereby Jonathan promised to protect and preserve David, and David in turn promised to protect and preserve Jonathan and his descendants. But I think what this request really reveals is the underlying paranoia within Saul. He believed David would kill him and his descendants, even though David had clearly declared otherwise. The singer Marsha Hines said this, There are those who always think the worst of people, and that's because they are the worst of people. That's Saul. He's the worst of people, always thinking the worst of others because of who he was. And so we're told, so David swore to Saul and Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. The fact that both men went their own way tells us two things. Number one, they were not properly reconciled. This was just a dignified retreat by Saul. But number two, there would be another day to come when they would face one another. They would live to fight another day. So this concludes the first part of our three-part story. David fails to honour the Lord's anointed, but David will be given a second chance in chapter 26. But before that, the Lord will teach David what honouring an evil man truly looks like in 1 Samuel chapter 25. Now we can all find ourselves in a tight spot like David. Uh, we can all find ourselves facing severe temptation to take matters into our own hands. Let's resolve to resist our flesh and let's make God our refuge and defence. Let him take care of our enemies. Amen. Father God, we thank you for your word and I pray that you'd help us to learn the lessons of, of uh, chapter 24. To let you fight our battles, to honour the Lord's anointed, to respect those in authority even though we might not agree with them. And help us to be those who are tender-hearted, that respond to the conviction of the Holy Spirit when it comes. In Jesus' name. Amen.